Ron's a pretty talented guy back there. Appreciate you using your talents to honor the Lord. Ron would never want me to draw attention to him, so appreciate that. Well, Christmas is, uh, is certainly one of those holidays now that people can shape and mold into whatever they want it to be. Let's be honest, right? Um, you, can, uh, you can make Christmas about being nice to one another. You can make it about... Um, world peace, uh, which I guess in one way, ultimately, it will be about world peace, just not in the way most people think it will be, um, or should be. Uh, You can make Christmas about receiving gifts and consumerism. Um, You know, everybody sort of has a way of of shaping Christmas into what they want it to be and celebrating what they want it to be about. And honestly, that's a pretty American thing to do. Um, We have a, a history of not just shaping Christmas to our own image, but we actually have a history of shaping Jesus to our own image and sort of forming him into what we want him to be and then sort of worshiping this Jesus of our own making. Uh, I have a book on my shelf uh, called Jesus Made in America, which is a great title. Uh, And the guy that that writes it is, uh, uh uh-oh, I'm doing something wrong. A little bit of feedback. All right. A little better. Thank you, Mark. So Jesus Made in America is this book. The guy that writes it is a, is a historian, church historian, and he goes through each period in America's history and shows how the preaching and the beliefs of the church during that time actually about Jesus, who he was, and what he was like, how the preaching and the beliefs of the church during that time reflected and were influenced by the broader culture. And so he starts with the Puritans and, you know, goes through uh, the American Revolution and the Civil War and up into the 1920s and the 50s and all of that. And uh, it's really a fascinating read. But I want to read you a paragraph from that book, and I think this will help you to get the idea of of what I'm talking about when I say Jesus, our image of Jesus is so often fashioned by the broader culture, right? He says, so it may be argued that America has its own quest for Jesus, its own reshaping of the Son of God, fashioning him into something more palatable to American tastes and acceptable to American sensibilities. Only in America would you find such books as Jesus CEO or its sequel, Jesus in Blue Jeans. For some Americans, Jesus is the consummate best friend and lover. For others, he is strong and mighty, ready for the defense of the weak. For others, still, he's a guru, a wise and enlightened sage. For American Roman Catholics, He is first the Savior on the cross, bloodied and suffering. For American Protestants, he is first, largely due to the prominence of this picture, Warner Salman's Head of Christ, done in 1941. He's nearly angelic, soft, and beloved by children. For countercultural rebels, he's a crazed malcontent, hurling the establishment in the form of money changers from the temple. For the inimitable Johnny Cash, he's the greatest cowboy of them all. 
And so, I mean, you can, you can see, and maybe you've experienced this, every different group of people sort of picks what they want from who Jesus is and fashions him in their own image, and he becomes whatever they want him to be, and they end up worshiping someone who is in their own image instead of the real Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is important all the time, but it's particularly important this time of year because we are thinking about the Lord and thinking about his incarnation, and we're pondering that reality in a very specific way. Who was it who came to earth as a baby? And so often you will hear Christians say, we need to keep Christ in Christmas. The holiday is all about him. He's the reason for the season, right? All the little cliches that we say to try to get across what is a real point, that it is his incarnation that we're celebrating. But as we do that, let's make sure that the reason for the season, the Christ that we want to keep in Christmas, is the actual biblical Christ, and not a Jesus that we have made in our own image, and not a Jesus who is so culturally acceptable to us that he would have been unrecognizable to Peter, James, and John, who knew him in the flesh. Now, obviously, your whole New Testament is filled with how important getting Jesus right really is, but the Apostle Paul knew this in a specific way, and he pressed this truth on a church in Colossae. And so I want you to turn to the book of Colossians. That's where we're going to be this morning. I realize it is not a very Christmassy text (laughs) to be in, but I think you'll see why we're going here this morning. Paul knew how important it was to get Jesus right, to think rightly about Jesus, and it's not just a matter of intellectual understanding, as you'll see. In Colossians, he was writing this letter to try to disarm some false teaching. And even when I talk about Jesus being made in America and fashioned and reshaped to our cultural taste, that is false teaching, right? It's getting Christ wrong, and so we want to combat that much like Paul was doing. There was a particular brand of false teaching that had come into the church and was influencing the believers in Colossae, and Paul is writing this saying, no, don't follow this teaching. Instead, here's what you need to do. You need to think carefully and accurately about who Jesus is. Listen to Paul's kind of thesis for his ministry and what he's doing, right? In Colossians 1, verse 28, talking about Christ, he says, Him we proclaim. That's what he does. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. But you can see there, even as Paul is preaching Christ, it's not a stale list of doctrinal points that he's preaching. The goal of knowing Christ, of proclaiming Christ, is presenting everyone mature in Christ. It's seeing people who reflect the image of Jesus Christ in their daily lives. That's the mission and that's the goal. Their attitudes, their intentions, and their actions change to be more like Jesus. And so Paul's answer to these false teachers is, Listen, if you're a believer, you have to grow in your grasp of who Jesus is. Don't let these false teachers, don't let the culture around you reshape your image of Christ. Let it be biblical. 
You have to do that because of what he says in chapter 2. Following up on the thesis for his ministry, look what he says here in in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And here's what he wants for them, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to have skill for living? You want to know how to live right and live the good life according to Scripture? Know Christ. Know who He is. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Don't get taken aside by false teaching. Don't get confused and deceived by the cultural position on who Jesus is and what's portrayed out in your world. Instead, know the Jesus who is presented in the Scriptures. Go down to chapter 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So if you go this afternoon and read the whole letter of Colossians, you'll see how much Paul goes back to the doctrine of Jesus Christ and who he is and just presses this on them. So as you're thinking about this, what did you buy your spouse for Christmas if you're married this morning? You don't have to tell us publicly. That would probably not be a good idea. So I I did not buy... Bethany, a stack of obscure books, Harry Potter memorabilia, and all 36 studio albums by Bob Dylan. Why? Well, that would be things I would want, not things that she would want, right? So, like, I know her, at least fairly well, and I know that she would not be excited to open those as gifts on Christmas morning because I have knowledge of her. I understand who she is. And so my knowledge of her leads me to buy things for her that she would like and that she would enjoy. Too often we fashion a portrait of Jesus that meets our wants and desires. It's like we, we buy things for, the, for our spouse that we want. That's what we do with Jesus. We want him to be like us and we want him to be sort of easy to understand and easy to get along with rather than the way that Scripture portrays him. And so that's, that's the goal this morning. I want you to walk into Christmas with as, an, as accurate a picture of Jesus as you can. Why? Well, certainly we're celebrating the incarnation as we celebrate Christmas, but you know very well that it doesn't end with the incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus is the beginning And the incarnation, his coming as a baby, leads to the cross and the resurrection, and even beyond the resurrection, to the time when he will, as this passage we're going to look at says, reconcile all things and establish his kingdom. And so if we're going to rightly understand God's mission, what he's all about from creation to new creation, then we need to understand the person who is at the very center and the heart of that mission. And that means understanding Jesus Christ. And so in Colossians, because Paul is trying to press this issue of who Christ is on these believers, he gives us one of the clearest and most rich 
and deep theological statements of Christ that we have in the New Testament. And it's in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. So that's where we're going to be this morning. And as we study this, we're going to see two reasons to worship Jesus as the key to God's saving mission. Two reasons to worship Jesus as the key to God's saving mission. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I'll give you the first one of these this morning so we can get that picture off the screen. Two reasons to worship Jesus. First of all, he is the supreme creator, and this is in verses 15 to 17. Now, before we start kind of working through that, I want to explain to you how this passage is structured, okay? So you're going to have to look at the text with me and let me identify some some words that will help you to see how this is set up, right? So verses 15 to 17 give us this picture of Christ as the supreme creator. Verses 18 to 20, you'll see later on, give us a picture of him as the preeminent recreator, okay? This whole passage, I think, is structured around the word firstborn, okay? So look in verse 15. You can see there, he's the firstborn of all creation. So that's one description of him, and that's what we're just giving here. He's the supreme creator. And then in verse 18, if you look down there, it calls him the firstborn from the dead. And so these are two pictures of Christ that anchor this whole text and give us our two points, He's the firstborn of all creation, and he's the firstborn from the dead. Everything in 15 to 17 explains him as the firstborn of all creation. Everything in 18 to 19 explains him as the firstborn from the dead, all right? So that's that's how this is structured. Those are the two pictures of Christ we're getting this morning. And those two pictures are not disconnected from what comes before. So in verses 9 to 14, you've got this wonderful prayer that Paul prays. This would be a good prayer to pray for others in our church body, certainly. But Paul is telling them, look, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for the gospel to continue to work in you. I want you to be filled with wisdom. I want you to be filled with understanding. And he tells them this work will continue in you because of verses 13 and 14. Look what he says there. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we've been moved. We've been transferred from one kingdom to another. And so now Jesus is your master and Lord. You are under his rule and under his reign. He is the king of the kingdom that you are now a part of. And because he is your master and Lord, the question naturally arises, okay, so who is he? And Paul's not given a lot of detail yet in Colossians as to who this king and this master is. And now he's going to tell us in verses 15 to 20. Look what he says in verse 15 at the beginning. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, God's son, is the image of the invisible God. How can you know God if you can't see him? And the answer is Jesus Christ. This is very similar to what John says in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And what do we learn about God from Jesus? Well, that's what he goes on to explain here in the rest of verse 15 and 16 and 17. 
that God is the supreme creator. And specifically, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is the creator. Look at the rest of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. So I told you that's the phrase that I think explains everything in verses 15 to 17. And so we need to understand that phrase. So firstborn can be a tricky word there, right? We normally think of a firstborn as the one who was chronologically born into the world first. I am the firstborn. I have one younger brother. So that's how we use that word in our culture. That's how we think of that word. And so some people read this text to be saying that Jesus is the first created being that was made. Now, that word firstborn is used pretty frequently in the Old Testament to talk about someone who was chronologically born first, but it's not always used that way, and it's almost never used that way in the New Testament. The way it's used almost in every instance in the New Testament is to talk about priority, the highest, the most important. In fact, there's a text that's really key and I think is the background to this in Psalm 89. I'll put it on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But what's amazing is this psalm is talking about a future Davidic king. So it's describing a descendant of David who would come, and it describes him using this word, firstborn. Let me read this to you, this text here. Hopefully it'll uh, come up on the screen. Oh, there it is. Here's what it says, verses 20 to 27. I have found David, my servant. So he's talking about this future David. He's like David. He's a descendant of David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And you can see there, it's not talking about someone who was chronologically born first. It's talking about the preeminent king, the highest king, the most important supreme king. And so this phrase is not speaking of Jesus as a created being, another angel, just a little cooler. It's describing him as the supreme creator. He is the most important one to everything and everyone who has ever been created. Why does Paul say that? Well, he goes on to explain it. Look at verse 16. He uses the word for because he's going to explain to you why Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For Notice these three prepositions. Sorry, we're getting a little grammatical here, but the theology is in the grammar. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's giving us the reason why he's the firstborn, and he uses these three prepositions, by, through, and for to describe Jesus' relationship to creation. When you read Genesis chapter 1, I don't know what you picture and who you picture creating the world, 
But Paul understands here the creator to be Jesus Christ. He's the one who is speaking. He is the builder or the foreman of all creation. All things are made by him and through him. Notice what it says in verse 17. He is before all things. He's the pre-existent one. He predates everything that has been created. And in him, all things hold together. This very moment, Jesus Christ is sustaining your heartbeat. He's keeping all of us pinned down to this earth and not floating away. He's holding every electron in place in every atom, in every inch of this universe. So verses 15 through 17 give us this picture of Jesus as the creator and master and Lord of everything. Look what he says in verse 16. He gives the whole scope here, right? All things, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, even the spiritual powers who the people in Colossae were tempted to worship, Jesus created those things too. He is master over everything. He uses this phrase, all things, four times in these two verses, in verse 16 and 17. All things, all things. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. You see the point that Paul is trying to get across here. All of creation exists for Jesus Christ. He is the goal He is the purpose of creation. Everything is moving toward the point where it will honor and magnify and lift up his name. Now, we talk in our culture a lot about identity, who we are, right? People want to be true to themselves. They want to find out who they are, to be authentic to who they really are. And when people say that, I think some of the problem with that is the reason it's not very helpful is when you say, I want to be true to myself, they're trying or they're, they're making self the starting point for all of that. I'm at the center of everything, and so I've got to figure out what I want and base everything on my desires. I'm living out my own version of truth. You're not going to really understand the world around you when you are the center of it because you're not the center of the world. Now, why am I talking about identity? Because there's nothing more central to your identity and to my identity than the fact that you are a created being. And you have been created by a loving, holy, sovereign, and good God. That is the most important thing about you as a person. That's the starting point. Everything else flows off of that reality. And when you think about who you are and your identity, you cannot properly understand who you are, no matter how old you are, what age you are, unless you understand yourself as someone who was spoken into existence by Jesus Christ. You were made by him, through him, and you were made for him. You exist for his honor and his glory. And you can't understand your identity either unless you know that you are sustained this moment by his word. So even as you draw breath 
and turn in rebellion against him, he is sustaining you and holding you and giving you that next breath that you use to sin against him, to live against him. He is the one to whom all creation points. Your life is meant to direct glory and honor to him. One author said that the story of creation and you and I as created beings is the framework in which every other story makes sense. You can't understand the world, yourself, or anything else unless you know that it's by him, through him, and for him. So that's Jesus. He is the supreme creator, but that's not all that Paul says here. That's only the first reason to worship him, and that is certainly enough. (laughs) He is the preeminent re-creator in verses 18 to 20. So he's the supreme creator. That seems clear enough, I I think, but you might be looking at this reason to worship him and wondering why, what does he mean by re-creator? What is that talking about? And I think that's a fair question. So as we just saw, Jesus created the world. It's all by him, through him, and for him. He created it by the word of his power, and he pronounced it very good. But very quickly, his creation turned in rebellion against him. He created everything to be for him, for his honor, for his glory, to reflect his love, to reflect his righteousness. But the very pinnacle of his creation, mankind, turned in rebellion against him and said, I don't want to live for you. I do not acknowledge that I am made by you. Instead, I I look to myself for purpose and identity and meaning. And that rebellion brought death, which is the undoing of God's creation. It's the breaking down of God's good creation. But as we read this morning in John chapter 3, God loved his creation. He loved the world that he had made, and so he would not let his creation be undone completely. And so he became a man and tied his fate forever to his creation's fate. And then he died as a man, and then he rose from the dead, becoming, verse 18, the end of the verse, the firstborn from the dead. So the idea here in this, the firstborn of the dead, and again, this is what holds verses 18 through 20 together. The idea here is similar to verse 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's a first fruit? It's the initial offering of the harvest that shows that more is coming that will be like this. And so when we see Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, he is the one who has been risen from, is raised from the dead. He is the founder. He is the initiator of the new creation. He's the one who made the old creation. He spoke it into existence in Genesis 1, and then he begins the new creation by his resurrection from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstfruits, and many more will follow after him. So that's why I say he's the preeminent recreator. He starts the whole recreation. And that's why in verse 18, back up from the firstborn from the dead, you can see there that Paul goes directly to the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
Because the church is people who are, it's made up of those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, who have been united to him, and who will rise to new life just like he rose from the dead. We are the fruit that follows him as the first fruit. He's the head of this group. And as the head of this group, as the founder, as the initiator, he gives direction and he gives purpose and he gives meaning to us, to his body, the church, because he is the head. Now, that's a massively significant idea there that we need to stop and think about a little bit here. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. What does that mean for us? Well, sometimes there can be a tendency among pastors to sort of think of the church as theirs, right? Oh, my church. You can sort of say those things. And, you know, I like it does make sense when I hear guys say that or if I say it sometimes, you know, because there's a lot of investment there. I mean, it's what we do full time, right? So we're concerned and involved and you're leading and serving and all of that. And, and so it's understandable in some ways, but you have to be, I have to be really careful when I inadvertently say my church or think that way because of what Paul says here as Jesus being the head of the body, the church. This is not my church. This is a gathering of people who are under the headship of Jesus Christ. He's the founder. He's the initiator. He sets the direction, and he's the one that we must obey, and he's the one that we must follow. He gives the marching orders, and we respond in obedience to the founder, to the initiator. But I'll tell you, it's not only pastors who are tempted to think of the church in that way and sort of take a little too much ownership. Sometimes people who are a part of the church can think that way too. Occasionally, church members will sort of fall into this, thinking of this gathering as my church. Now, there's a good way to say that, and there's a really wrong way to think about that. This is my church. This is my ministry. Don't you mess with my ministry. I've been going here for 40 years. You know how much money I've given to this church over the years? This is my church. And we can easily shift into a mode of thinking where we tend to treat the church as if it belongs to us in some form or fashion. We start to make decisions based on what we want rather than on following the headship of Jesus Christ. We forget that we are the body and we are serving and following the head. You do not sing to bring honor to yourself. I do not preach to make people think I'm great. Everything that we do is meant to draw attention to our founder, to our head, to our initiator, Jesus Christ. It's all about him. No matter what area you're serving in, no matter what ministry you have and you're a part of, no matter what you're doing here, Jesus is the head of the church because he's the firstborn from the dead. And so he must have first place in everything. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's first place. So in verses 15 to 17, just kind of back up big picture here, 
We saw Paul tell us that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and then you see that word for in verse 16, and he explains why he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, he does the same thing here. Look at verse 19. He's just told us that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now in verse 19, look, he says for, and he's going to tell us why he's the firstborn from the dead, why he should have preeminence in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he's able to be head of the church, and he should be head of the church, and he should give direction to the church because in him all the fullness of God dwells. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 9. We read verse 8 earlier. Paul says, don't let anyone take you captive through philosophy, through man-made traditions, not according to Christ. Why? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I mean, look, you are dealing with God become man. And so, of course, he should be the founder and the initiator and the head. And it's through him that we know God. This is very similar to verse 15, where he says he's the image of the invisible God. He's God become man. The fullness of deity dwells in him. And this is why he can actually save us. He's not just a man. He's not a created being. He's not some angel. He can save us because the fullness of deity dwells in him. His resurrection from the dead begins the new creation because of this truth. One theologian said it this way, and I thought this was really helpful. In sending the Son to save us, however, the Father was not distancing himself from us, but drawing us into himself because the Son is one with him. He can stand in the Father's presence and act as our mediator precisely because he is the Father's equal. Man, because he's God, because he's man, he can save us. And he represents us in the presence of the Father right now. And that's what we're celebrating this time of year in the incarnation. And that, that salvation mission is precisely why God sent him. And that's the mission that he has. Look at verse 20. And through him, because he's God, because he's man, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's a lot happening here, but kind of the main heart of this is that he came to reconcile to himself all things. So we talked earlier about Jesus creating everything for him and his creation rebelling against him and sort of becoming unhinged and turning against his lordship. Well, he comes to set that right. He comes to reconcile mankind to himself, but not just mankind. He comes to make everything right. He comes to undo the curse on creation. Romans chapter 8 describes this beautifully. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth 
until now. So his saving purposes certainly center on mankind, but they don't end there. He's going to remake the whole thing, recreate it all in one sense. And that's one of the great promises of Christmas, isn't it? That's one of the things we sing about. I joked about world peace earlier, but those passages in Isaiah that promise the birth of a king, they talk about a time that will come when shalom and peace will cover the entire earth. That's one of the great promises that we celebrate at Christmas. All will be reconciled to God. How? The end of verse 20. He'll make peace by the blood of his cross. So as you read this, you have to ask this question. Is he saying here that every person is going to be made right with God at some point in the future and everyone will end up in his presence and saved and enter this new creation with him? That everyone will be reconciled to God in the same way? Some people have argued that from this passage over the years. But that can't be what he's arguing here because of chapter 2 and verse 13. Look down there with me. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, made a lot, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, so cross language there. And then look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The peace that Christ won on the cross was through the triumph over his enemies. He sets things right by winning the victory over sin and by punishing those and putting to open shame those who have rejected and continue to reject his lordship. They who, those who defy the lordship of Christ over the old creation and the new creation will one day bow to him as Lord, but they will not bow as his friends, but as his enemies for all of eternity. And so that's what Christmas means too. There certainly is the promise of peace, but Jesus does not bring peace by sort of smoothing everything out and saying, oh, it's all good, it's all okay. He brings peace by a glorious victory over the powers of darkness. He's a warrior God, just like he's a crucified lamb. So I think in this passage you have two, I think, very powerful pictures of Jesus Christ. He's the supreme creator, and he's the preeminent re-creator. Now, these are glorious pictures, but you're sitting here today going, man, I do not see these things played out in my life this week. It sure seems like the world is still out of control and going nuts. And my life sure seems that way, too, at times. And so that's why Christmas is a great time to think about these things because we're waiting for Christmas. And even in our whole lives, we are waiting for both of these to be displayed in their fullness. We're waiting for him to set everything right, to reconcile all things to himself, to make peace completely, finally, and fully. So we live in between. He's begun this work. The new, work, the new creation has been initiated 
His kingdom is advancing in our world today, and yet we wait, and we live our lives in between, and we hope and we anticipate that time when he will return and he will arrive in all of his glory and set up his kingdom for all of eternity. But waiting doesn't mean despondency. It doesn't mean sort of throwing in the towel. It doesn't mean inaction while we're here. We wait with a particular posture. We wait with enthusiasm. We wait with hope. We wait with confidence. And as we wait, we want to know the supreme creator and the preeminent recreator. We want to grow in our knowledge of him. And that's the main mission that you and I have as we wait. And I think Paul prayed a really, really helpful prayer for us as we wait. Let me read verses 9 to 14, and we'll close with this. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at who you are. Draw our hearts up to worship you for this picture that we've seen of you. My words are certainly inadequate to convey the majesty and the splendor of one who is the supreme creator and is also the one willing to stoop, to die, to save his rebellious creatures, and to bring them new life. How can we explain that sort of person and that sort of majesty and glory that you deserve? We can't with our human tongues. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, would draw us up to worship, and would give us wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you. Thank you for who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.